The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Alex Ewell, Deputy Editor of Barron's. Thanks for joining us today for our call on healthcare investing. I've got my colleague here, Barron's healthcare reporter, Josh Nathan Kazis. Welcome back to Barron's Live, Josh. Great to be here. Good to talk to you. Yeah, you too. So, you know, Josh, I usually talk about tech on the calls that, that I do. Um, and we've had a lot to discuss in recent months, given the explosion of interest in AI. But today, as we said, is a healthcare call. Um, what's interesting to me in particular is that healthcare actually almost feels like the new tech in some ways these days, because the only thing that's actually competing with AI right now for attention seems to be all the excitement around weight loss drugs. So let's start there. Um, what's the latest in the, uh, in the weight loss drug uh, arena right now? Yeah, I think, you know, you sort of put your finger on it. This is one of those times when the biggest story in healthcare feels like the biggest story in the market, right? Um, you know, I think since the last time we had one of these calls, there was a major development. This is a couple of weeks ago now, but um, I, th there was a report from Novo, Novo Nordisk, um, one of the companies behind these medicines, um, that their weight loss medicine, Wagovi, had reduced the risk of heart attack or stroke in obese and overweight patients by 20%. Now, you know, everyone knows that uh, the Novo drug and the Eli Lilly drug have um, pretty extraordinary ability to reduce weight. Um, but what these medicines hadn't proven was a health benefit beyond, you know, simple weight loss for people right. who are not diabetic. Right. Um, and this was the first study to show that it, it's, it's just of Wagovi, which is the Novo drug, but I think it's being taken as a sign um, that all of the medicines in this class, uh, including the Lilly drug, will have the same effect. And this is, this is pretty important. And, and, and why it's important because it gets us beyond talking about these drugs as simply weight loss drugs, and it becomes more of a actually uh, good for your health drug. Yeah. And, you know, obviously that's important from a health perspective, but it's also important from an insurance coverage and access perspective. You know, uh, a lot of insurers um, ha are... are generally unwilling to pay for um, diet pills, weight loss drugs. Um, yeah. And and once you have, I mean, the thesis is that once you have evidence of a broader health benefit, it's going to be harder for insurers to deny coverage. It'll be easier for the companies and for patients to the degree that they want to, to argue that their insurer or their um, employer should cover it. Now, this is only the very beginning of, I think, what's going to be a multi-year process. Uh, Eli Lilly has their own similar trials that won't read out for a number of years. The big question really is if Medicare is going to pay for this. Um, right. Currently, in fact, th there it is written into the law that created the Medicare prescription drug, drug benefit that it can't cover weight loss drugs. Um, and you would need an act of Congress to change that. I think the that's so fascinating. Is, I mean, weight loss drugs barely existed at that point when they wrote that. No, law. that's not true. There's a long history of weight loss medicines. Um, and I think there's long been a perception that they're dangerous. Uh, many have I had pretty bad side effects. Um, I think there's a long, de lot of debate about whether, 
you know, um, whether weight issues are a health or a lifestyle issue. Um, and so uh, a lot of, you know, potentially discomfort among legislators around paying for it. Um, I, and, and so this is, this is, this was for whatever reason I, in the early two thousands, I believe, uh, or now I'm maybe getting my history wrong here, but whenever the law was written, it, it yeah. explicitly left them out. And, um, so there's sort of a question now about whether, um, there may be, uh, Congress may vote to change that, uh, whether CMS could find some way around it without an act of Congress, um, big questions here. And, and, you know, it, there are also big challenges. These are expensive, relatively expensive medicines. There was a paper in the New York England journal, um, of medicine earlier this year that it said, if just 10% of Medicare patients with obesity, take Wagovi, the Novo drug, it would cost the program $26.8 billion per year. And I will say that that 10% seems um, like a quite conservative estimate uh, because it doesn't include people who are overweight, but not obese, right. who may also be eligible to take the medicine. Do you have any way, um, is there any easy way of putting that $27 billion into context? I mean, it sounds yes. like a big amount. Is, is that it a is, lot? It is a big amount. Um, I mean, it's like a fifth of total spending by the Part D prescription drug benefit. I mean, wow. I think that, did, that, that didn't exist until now. So that you're adding on another fifth potentially, even at that conservative number. Yeah. And this is that also doesn't include, in my understanding, um, people who would take a similar medicine from Novo for type 2 diabetes. This is just would be the obesity indication. You know, I, I think the okay. bottom line is that um, this new study from Novo. I think put aside a lot, you know, there'd been a big question or there's been a lot of hype around these medicines as, you know, the sort of record breaking blockbusters, right. And yeah. some skepticism. And I think this put aside at least one big source of that skepticism. Okay. And so we're very much in sort of the, these are going to be blockbusters, if not maybe the most important drugs ever camp. Am I, am I exaggerating things? I think that, that is certainly a widely held position among healthcare investors. I mean, there's lots of reasons why it might not happen, you know, um, right, right. Uh, lots of questions about access, about, you know, payment, about um, there's some side effects that are being investigated, but uh, I think the consensus position right now, and, and you can see the consensus in the market value of these companies, yeah. which is pretty astonishing. Well, well, that's what I was going to ask next, which is, you know, give us an update on what all this has meant for the market. I was just pointing out to you, actually, I, I was just looking up because I'm, I'm straining here to make the AI connection only because you know, <laughs> it's been the other area of hype. And so I looked, NVIDIA obviously has been this crazy stock this year, you know, up 200%, I think, year to date. But over the last month, I was actually just looking and I think Eli Lilly and Nova Nordisk um, are both outpacing NVIDIA um, for a one month period. So th that's yeah. interesting to me. But so what has all this meant for the market, would you say? Yeah, so, you know, Lilly now has a market value of uh, more than $520 billion. I believe the first pharmaceutical company ever to cross that half trillion dollar mark. It is the largest healthcare company right now. It's uh, bigger in terms of market value than United Healthcare, which has been the longest for, largest for a while. It surpassed Johnson & Johnson even before Johnson & Johnson split off its consumer unit. Um, Novo is also up pretty sharply, uh, quite sharply, about 40% this year. Their market value is over $400 billion. So, you know, the revenues of these companies are a small fraction of Johnson & Johnson, for example, but people see um, tremendous long-term value here. So these have become like the ultimate growth stocks. I mean, not unlike tech stocks in that way, though. Right. I don't know the multiple off the top of my head, but it is, 
I mean, Lily's also always traded or always, I mean, for many years traded at a higher multiple than its peers. Um, I okay. think there's a general belief that their R and D engine is quite good. They don't have the same patent cliff issue that basically all the rest of big pharma has. Um, and they have a lot of medicines people are excited about, not just these, um, uh, GLP ones are called these uh, obesity medicines. There's a right. Alzheimer's medicine has gotten a lot of attention and uh, a whole pipeline, but, um, but, you know, I think that the stock moves over the last few months have really been uh, extraordinary enthusiasm, um, buoyed by very high peak sales estimates for the, I mean, you know, you hear like 70 billion a year peak sales for these good drugs and the, the best selling drug in history was in the, you know, 20 billion a year range. Wow. Wow. Okay. So we're, we're talking potentially more than triple the biggest blockbuster that we've already had. So that, 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 that explains the half a trillion dollar market value to some degree. Yep. Um, okay, so I want to. This is a little bit maybe outside of your your wheelhouse, but I, I I thought I would ask this, and you know, if you're comfortable talking about it, great. Um, the uh, I read a story, uh, and I think it was in the New York Times, uh, I think in the last week, that basically, you know, these companies, the, these 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 GLP twos, the weight loss drugs, have um, sort of were an accident, and that 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 the pharmaceutical companies didn't really uh, plan to land where they landed with these significant weight loss benefits from this class of drug. That seemed really surprising to me. Can you, um, does that mean we're giving Eli Lilly and, and the others too much credit, um, both in the marketplace and as kind of a creator of this drug? Any thoughts on that? I mean, I, I thought the article was fascinating as well. Readers should go find it. Uh, listeners rather should go find it. I'm, I'm no expert on drug discovery. I, I do think that I mean, my understanding is that lots of medicines we use now, we sort of found by accident, right? I mean, we pay a lot of attention to these very advanced technologies that develop that, you know, that, that are, that are resulting in very targeted medicines, a lot of the new cancer right, right. medicines, you know, the mRNA vaccines, we all know how yep, those were yep, in a yep, very yep. detailed level. But I, I think, you know, there's lots of very widely used medicines that we don't fully understand. I mean, people have theories about how and why they work, but for example, the SSRI depression medicines, I, I I don't, I don't think we have a real complete knowledge, full, deep understanding of how, why and how they precisely work. So I, I, don't, I don't know that it's to, so totally out of the ordinary in terms of drug development that, you know, it came, came along kind of by accident and we don't fully understand the mechanism. Or, you know, I mean, people I, I, certainly understand how it works, but this specific mechanism of action, exactly why it works the way it does. Sure, uh, sure. Know, I'm not sure that, that we could say we fully understand that for for many important medicines out there. I think that's just a really, you know, when it, when it comes to people thinking about drug pipelines and discovery and everything, just that big idea is a really important one because. Yeah. Um, although, you know, it doesn't, it's not to take away from the accomplishment of these companies, right? I mean, often pharmaceutical companies don't, don't do the foundational, you know, basic science research that comes up with a thing that may work, right? They're the ones who progress it, through trials they'll they'll have sort of transit translational research but i don't think it's it's super unusual that like many drugs start with something that someone in an academic lab or a biotech um found might work right and it's the job of the big pharma company to turn that into a product into a product that makes a lot of sense okay um that's really interesting so thanks for that uh all right so let's uh let's turn to another uh big topic uh, because amazingly, although maybe predictably, we're talking about COVID yet again. There's been a bit of a late summer wave. 
Um, and while we're not kind of dealing with the, the cancellations and, and life-changing alterations of prior waves, it is definitely back in the news. So first, give us a sense, you know, how real is this surge? How much time are you spending back on COVID in your own reporting life again? Um, well, I think the most important thing to start with is that in terms of like absolute numbers, the numbers remain some of the lowest we've seen since the start of the pandemic. There was one okay. dip before this spring that got down to where we are in terms of, you know, positive tests in hospitals. Um, but we are still at a, at a very low level relative to other points in the pandemic. On the other hand, you know, it's clear that um, the virus is on the rise. You know, the easiest to discuss data at this point is um, positive, yeah, new admissions of positive hospital patients. Okay. Um, and that's up like 20% between uh, the latest week for which we have data, which is a couple of weeks ago, and um, the week before that. Uh, and that that increase, you can see it goes back to mid July, you know, it's been ticking upwards a little bit. Um, so I, you know, I, I think uh, it's certainly made its way back into the news. Uh, I'm certainly writing about it more than I had for many months. Um, but I don't think we really know yet what it's going to mean for our lives, right? We, at least for the variants that are dominant right now, um, I think the idea is that we, many of us are protected from severe disease by our prior infections and our prior um, vaccination. So got it, um, got it. My, right. my understanding is that, uh, you know, we at this point don't appear to be headed back towards, you know, the dark old days. Okay, well, that is that is optimistic and good to hear. What is so we we talked about what it may or may not mean for our daily lives. What does it mean for um, pharma companies right now? I think new boosters are are at least on their way. Um, you know, are we are we now suddenly expecting uptake to be a little higher? I don't think it was particularly high a year ago for for boosters uh, last fall. You know, what does it mean for um, for these pharma companies? And, and yeah, it's been kind of a. No, it's been ahead. kind of a roller coaster over the last three weeks for these pharma for Moderna and Pfizer. You know, we started August with both the companies reporting earnings, and on both those calls and in both those presentations, the companies tried to tamp down expectations for COVID sales, COVID vaccine sales this year. You know, both of them had said um, early this year that they expected a U.S. vaccine market of about 100 million doses this year. Um, okay. Moderna. Uh, in early August said now they expect between 50 and 100 million doses, which is, you know, I think on the low end, quite a cut. And Pfizer yeah. indicated as well that they were, you know, the, the, the issue here is that both these companies have built up quite expensive uh, COVID operations. Um, their cost bases now are pretty high uh, and investors just don't see a lot of demand or at least haven't predicted a lot of demand this year or next. And it's been a real drain on both prices, the shares of both of these stocks. Um, you know, part of the issue is that this is the first year where we've had commercial distribution of these vaccines or commercial purchasing of these vaccines. Up until now, the government has, the federal government has bought all the COVID vaccines used in the U.S. Um, now so it's, uh, it, you know, it's moving out. You have to sell directly to, to consumers versus. Yeah, to and it makes it very hard to predict for investors to sort of guess what uptake is going to be. Um, but that said, so that was like the first week of the month. Um, and then by like mid-August, we started to get a lot more reports of increased cases and people started to get a little anxious. And you've seen the stocks, you know, I just looked, the, they're up about, um, 
the uh, Moderna and BioNTech, which is Pfizer's partner, are about like 13% since mid-August. Um, so okay. that's a reversal for stocks that are down, you know, something like 40% over the year. But, um, uh, you know, I think it's sort of unclear whether this was people seeing the news and buying what it seemed to be sort of a year-long, you know, buying into the weakness or, or whether people are really significantly revising their estimates upwards. Yeah. Okay. Um, got it. We actually, I had, say, had a, yeah, sorry. Yeah, go ahead, Josh. No, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, you mentioned these boosters. Um, the boosters target a variant called XBB.1.5, which doesn't exist more or less anywhere in this country. Although uh, both companies have said that the dominant variant should also be neutralized. The currently dominant variant should be neutralized by the boosters. The CDC and FDA say the boosters are coming in mid to late September, which notably is later than they came last year. Hmm. Okay. Um, got it. So tell us, um, we did have a question, uh, from a reader, Amira had said, had asked, can you speak about, uh, you know, Moderna as a stock? I know, um, we've been writing about the stocks recently. Any, any thoughts, um, that you can give us on, on Moderna now that it's at this kind of almost transition or uh, transition point? You know, um, Moderna has always been a hotly, fiercely debated stock, even perhaps even more so before the pandemic. Uh, began when it was probably the most controversial biotech. Um, uh, but I, I suggest that listeners look at Andrew Barry's piece in our magazine from last weekend, where he argued that uh, Moderna is uh, essentially a good bet at this point. They have a tremendous pile of cash and a promising pipeline. You know, um, I think there's a lot of interest and excitement in their uh, cancer vaccine, they call it. It's a cancer therapeutic being tested now in combination with Merck's Keytruda in a, I believe, a skin cancer trial. Um, they have very ambitious plans around respiratory vaccines. I think Andrew's uh, case is really based on their cash and their pipeline, but um, it's an interesting piece. And uh, I um, advise you go take a look. Yeah, got it. And, and is it in terms of revenue right now, is Moderna still at this point, like a COVID pure play? Uh, yep. It's their only uh, approved. It, it is their only. Drug. Okay. Yes, got it. Okay. Um, but they, you know, they, they say they expect, you know, they have an RSV and a flu vaccine that are in late stage trials. Okay. Got it. All right. Um, so let's, um, so there are another uh, fairly significant healthcare topic of the last uh, few weeks has been Johnson and Johnson's spinoff of its consumer health unit into a company called uh, it's calling Kenview. Um, there've been some, we, you know, strange things to the, de- the mechanics of this deal. But before we get to that, can you just tell us where we are? Can you give us an overview uh, of how J&J and Kenview now break down? Why is J&J, you know, spinning off um, what, at least for consumers, might be some of its best known brands like like Tylenol? Yeah, you know, J&J is sort of late to the party here. Like uh, over the past decade, I did a feature about this maybe a year ago. Over the past five, six, seven, eight years, Virtually all of its peers have gotten rid of v- virtually all of their ancillary businesses to become pure play biopharmas. Um, you know, okay. there was a trend over many decades for uh, big pharma companies to really um, add a lot of side businesses. You know, you saw, I mean, in the 70s, Bristol Myers owned a movie studio. Um, <laughs> these companies were in chewing gum. They were in um, uh, animal medicines. They were in eye care. They were in these consumer health companies, you know, making stuff like shampoo and um, or at least baby shampoo and band-aids and, and, and uh, over-the-counter 
uh, pills. Um, and I think the idea there was that, um, you know, um, biopharma, you know, developing and testing new drugs is a very risky business and you want some sort of stable side businesses to, to help even out, um, during the difficult times. And the company, the, the thinking has moved away pretty sharply from that. And you saw, you know, um, Pfizer got rid of their animal health unit, um, Pfizer got rid of their consumer health unit. Pfizer got rid of, Pfizer did a big, big series of these. Uh, Lilly did a bunch of these. Um, there are very few big pharma companies that have anything now besides their core biopharma businesses. So Johnson Johnson was sort of the last to do it. They are actually keeping their medical device business and keeping okay. their core biopharma business, but they're spinning off consumer health. And, and that's the company, the piece of the company that sold things like Tylenol and, um, uh, and Band-Aids and a couple of other very large brands. Okay, got it. Um, so you had, you've been doing some reporting actually around uh, Tylenol lately. It was another piece of, of this kind of J&J story that, that maybe didn't get much attention. Um, can you tell us a little bit about this Tylenol litigation? Yeah, I thought this was very interesting. So, you know, a lot of the, um, there was a lot of discussion around this spinoff around, uh, Johnson Johnson's litigation over its talcum powder or talc powders, right? The baby powder yeah, right, right, um, right. Uh, cases. Uh, Johnson Johnson has been sued by people who claim they developed cancer um, after using the baby powder. There's been thousands of lawsuits, uh, very complicated. Um, basically, Johnson Johnson is keeping that U.S. liability. And I think the fact that they were taking that off the table made Kenview an easier sell, you know, it sort of gets investors away from the overhang of that litigation, which continues to, I think, be a drag on the stock, despite the company's strong efforts to, to de handle it in various yeah, ways. Got it. Okay. Um, that aside, there was very little attention and almost no analysts mentioned this other litigation that, uh, that Kenview is keeping um, the liability on. Um, it's in an earlier stage. It's smaller at this point, but I, it does, I think, have the potential to become a bigger problem uh, down the road. Um, this is a, about a couple of hundred cases that have been brought against um, the Kenview subsidiary that sells Tylenol. Uh, and they claim that Tylenol caused neurological disorders in children whose mothers took the med medicine while pregnant and that the company is at fault for not including a warning about possible risks on the bottle. Now, Kenview says that Tylenol is one of the most studied medicines in history and that U.S. regulators and medical organizations call it safe. Um, and I think it's very important to say that the science here is very contentious and um, all of the leading um, uh, uh, obstetric organizations, you know, uh, medical organizations in the U.S. say that um, patients, you know, can take Tylenol, pregnant patients can take Tylenol under the advice of their doctors. Um, okay. so, uh, the plaintiffs, however, have won a number of procedural victories in the past few months. Um, there's a, what's called a multi-district litigation, a combined federal proceeding that brings together a lot of these cases and, uh, it's moving forward And this fall. They're going to fight over whose experts can testify essentially. And if the judge approves the plaintiff's experts, if the judge says that, um, the, you know, the scientists who the plaintiff's attorneys want to bring to discuss um, the um, alleged risks of Tylenol can actually testify in cases, then all bets are off. I mean, then it's really going to be up to juries. And, and 
you know, I mean, the plaintiff's attorneys say it could be one of the biggest multi-district litigations ever. It could be an um, exaggeration. I mean, the, the for example, the opioid multi-district litigation is tremendous. But a lot of people take Tylenol. Um, uh, you know, they're so hard been... to think of a more popular drug if I had to. I mean, I yeah. no expert. And, you know, and, there, and there have been studies over the last decade um, of this, and some of them have showed uh, uh, that, uh, you know, a possible link. Uh, I think um, scientists agree that more study is necessary. You know, we, we know the risk of, there is a risk of untreated pain and fever in pregnant people. Um, uh, U.S. doctors don't advise against taking Tylenol while pregnant. However, it's certainly something that's being studied, uh, you know, by oh. legitimate real scientists. Um, so, you know, and I think, I think investors are more, uh, attuned to the risks of this kind of litigation, you know, after the experience, of the attack litigation, the experience, of the opioid litigation. Um, and, uh, you know, last year there was worries over litigation around the, uh, heartburn drug Zantac, which is no longer, um, sold. Um, and it had a tremendous effect on the stocks of a number of companies that it sold at at various times. They've mostly recovered after um, a judge actually uh, disallowed testimony by various um, uh, experts offered by the plaintiffs. But it remains to be seen what's going to happen in this case. And the judge should make a decision by the end of the year. At that point, I think it'll be much easier to say how much of a problem this could be for Kenview. Okay. And, and, but important to point out that because of the separation and spinoff, this is like, if you're a J and J, if you're J and J or a J and J investor, um, and you, you know, you, you're not continuing to hold Kenview, this is not on your, on your books anymore. Right. Right. I think uh, J and J still owns a little bit of Kenview, but you know, basically okay. yeah, that's right. right. You know, and I think we should say like the science doesn't need to be conclusive for the litigation to be a big problem. Like Got it. in the Telk case, uh, I think J and J will tell you that the science is not conclusive there. Um, obviously, that's a matter of dispute, but uh, you know, I think I think everyone has learned that we don't need like you know science saying this causes this in order for um, you know litigation to become a major headache for a company and and for juries to potentially find big big damages. Right. Right. Okay. Okay. Um, all right, so definitely something worth keeping an eye on. Um, let's get to uh, another story that I'm hoping you can shed some light on, um, because last week, I think it was, we saw that shares of uh, CVS and Cigna got really hammered because a regional, um, a regional insurance company, a California insurance company, said that it was going to stop using uh, the pharmacy benefit manager um, owned by CVS, like CVS Caremark, right? So first of all, can you tell us, remind us, what is a pharmacy benefit manager yeah. and why did this uh, news scare people so much? So everyone loves to hate the pharmacy benefit manager. It's a, um, it's a middleman in the, you know, drug, the drug distribution chain, I guess, um, that, that operates with very little transparency and, and um, you know, uh, big pharma companies blame it for all the problems around drug pricing. I mean, what, what these entities do is they negotiate on behalf of insurers uh, with uh, generally with pharmaceutical companies. Um, they negotiate over drug prices. They try to secure rebates from the pharmaceutical manufacturers. Um, 
Uh, they are now the big ones are all owned by insurers. Uh, UNH owns one, Cigna owns one, and CVS owns one. Um, and I think that you know there's been a, a lot of discourse suggesting that they take a lot of value out of the system and don't return a lot of value. They would tell you something different. They would say they they give leverage to insurers um, against the you know effective monopolies of the pharmaceutical companies. Um, so that said. Um, something interesting happened last week, as you mentioned, Blue Shield of California, which is a nonprofit health plan in California, a pretty big one, uh, said that it would generally get rid of its pharmacy benefit manager and then it would replace the services with the, with a bunch of other competing services that have cropped up. So they're keeping CVS for, I think it's specialty pharmacy for a little bit of the piece of the pie. Um, okay. They're they're going to Amazon for a piece of the pie. They're going to Cost Plus Drugs, which is uh, Mark Cuban's low, low cost medicine uh, entity. For another piece of the pie and there's a few other pieces that they're using to make it up what they're trying to do is very challenging very complicated a lot of moving pieces not easy at all but um i i think it it spooked investors a little bit and there's a question of whether other regional insurers will try to try the same thing you know and that would have implications for cvs for cigna for united health um and uh, i think it'll take a couple of years to see whether they're really able to deliver you know, lower costs their 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 customers um, by doing this. Now, and CVS, I think shares of CVS were down what as much as like seven percent on the day when this was mm-hmm. announced. They were hardest mm-hmm. hit. Um, Amazon. Anytime you hear Amazon get mentioned, it often uh, scares industries because they've been such a disruptive force in various areas. Y- you've written, I think, a little bit about Amazon's attempts in healthcare. I mean, is is this an op- is this a big opening for Amazon? Do you think? You know. Um, I, I, yeah, as you say, you know, every time Amazon makes a move into healthcare, people get very worried. Um, you know, I think people have become a bit jaded, uh, around this, this yeah, set of worries. Yeah. Uh, there's been a lot of freakouts over it at various times after they've made various moves. Um, to me, this just seems like a continuation of the strategy that they'd, you know, this is not a new service, um, Amazon had, um. I think it's just like the prescription delivery service that Amazon has had for a number of years. Um, I, I think the, the, the bigger story here is the the threat to the PBM business model. Got it. Now, of course, PBM has has locked in clients in in the plans run by their by the companies that own them, right? So you you can only threaten the PBM so much. But if they lost a, a number of regional insurers, you know, you got to imagine that would have some effect. Okay. All right. Um, well, uh, that's really interesting. So we're, um, we're actually almost out of time. I, I wanted to maybe follow up with a couple, at least one question from readers. You mentioned, um, Pfizer during our J and J discussion and a couple of readers, um, including Dean and, uh, Rajesh have had questions about Pfizer and why it struggled of late. Um, can you just give us a few, uh, you know, a few seconds there? Yeah, I mean, you know, the big story with Pfizer, as I think we've said many times, is this patent cliff and large number of their medicines are going off patent before the end of the decade. Uh, I believe the, they'll, they'll about 17 billion of revenues each year. You know, I'm sorry, annual revenues will have gone by the end of this, this patent cliff. They've been doing a lot to prepare for it. Uh, they've got a lot of new approvals, a lot of drugs in the pipeline that are coming up and coming out to the market, a lot of launches. I think the challenge has been uh, a real focus on the COVID vaccine, um, you know, that COVID vaccine sales drove their revenues up dramatically right, um, right. last year, the year before. Uh, now, I think investors are not quite sure what to expect. 
they've said they're going to reduce their COVID cost base if sales come in sales come in below estimates um, uh, this year. Um, so they're dealing with it in that way. Um, I think it's a real transition period, and, and maybe investors are waiting to see how some of these new products look once they are on the market. Okay. All right. Well, that uh, that just about uh, wraps up for us. So we are, we are out of time, Josh. Thank you so much for joining us today. And great talking. Uh, yeah, great talking to you too. Thanks to uh, our listeners for tuning in. Please join us again tomorrow at noon Eastern when my Market Watch and Barron's colleagues are going to be hosting a special episode from Jackson Hole, Wyoming, covering the Fed's much anticipated annual gathering there. Thanks for listening. Be well and have a great day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.